Welcome back to The Bigger Picture, Perspectives from Prison. Once again, we're joined by our friend Demel Dukes. On this episode, we'll be discussing federal and state sentencing laws, as well as a few Supreme Court cases that helped to shape these guidelines and, as a result, the lives of thousands of Americans. Please check out our Instagram page, at Perspectives from Prison, where Jack and I will be posting some resources for further learning. Thanks for tuning in. This call is now being recorded. All right, so we're back with Mel Dukes, um, and I think today we're we're uh, interested to hear your opinions on uh, you know sentencing, especially around you know life without parole. Okay, um, so what I'm going to understand, uh, and I can speak from Michigan's uh, common law practices in dealing with uh, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. There was a time in the state of Michigan where the death penalty was considered, I think it was in the late 1800s, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the early 1900s, where this was considered and struck down by the will of the people. And they preserved the uh, most stringent punishments, such as, you know, life without the possibility for, for capital offenses that was, number one, used as a deterrent, but number two, to, you know, punish more harshly the more heinous of crimes. Um, now, everywhere in America, from what I'm getting to understand, you have what you call individual culpability and proportionality. And from what I'm given to understand, the individual culpability, meaning that if you have multiple co-defendants, that each person is charged and punished according to what he or she did. And proportionality centered around, uh, you know, does the time fit the crime? Well, somewhere around the 1980s and 90s, specifically, where this that was this wave in not only Michigan, but throughout the uh, U.S., wherein they began to talk about being tough on crime and to sentence more harshly. And what the Federal Sentencing Commission did, from what I'm given to understand, was stripped away the um, the uh, anonymity or the authority from courts and came up with these sentencing schemes that had basically mandatory languages to them. If you do this, you automatically fall into these ranges. If you do that, you fall into these ranges. And what happened was uh, I think they threw out the baby with the bathwater because what they did was in a, a heavy-handed attempt to answer the so-called war on drugs and uh, get tough on crime, they inadvertently or maybe on purpose stripped the discretion from the judges. And as we know in this country, uh, things may start out with a uh, noble intention to deter crime and to give justice to the public. However, it also has unintended consequences, or maybe not so unintended, where you begin to see more harshly with quote-unquote people of color and minorities uh, being charged with these, uh, uh, not necessarily the acts in which they've done, but with these mandatory sentencing schemes that no matter what it is that you've done in the way of uh, individual uh, culpability, if you were charged uh, with doing a particular act, it was out of the judge's hands. And namely, uh, in Michigan, MCL 753.16, which is the uh, sentencing enhancement statute for first-degree murder or felony murder, if you were found guilty of that, uh, right off the bat that you were mandatorily given life without the possibility of parole. I think that's really that, interesting. That's a brief history. Go ahead. Yeah, I, was gonna, I think that's really interesting. I just want to expand on the fact that these judges don't, or just kind of ask you a question, that these judges don't have a judgment call whether, like, to base your sentence off, like, as soon as you're 
deemed guilty, you're handed a life sentence without parole if you're guilty of um, felony one murder? That's right. Um, I'll give an example. There was a time in Michigan where parolable lifers were given uh, life with the possibility of parole, and the judges that sentenced them at that time uh, was under the understanding that after maybe 15 or 20 years that these people would uh, eventually get out. Well, somewhere in between that time, the Michigan Parole Board took it upon themselves to say then that uh, life meant life. So these people who were given at one time their sentence, uh, say 20 years ago, and they're 20 years into their prison sentence, uh, they were under the impression, the judges even, thought that, that perhaps that they would be given an opportunity at parole, but the parole board took it upon themselves to, uh, like I say, uh, basically interpret law and to legislate from a parole board perspective, which is, you know, totally against the Constitution. It's a separation of powers uh, violation. And what happened subsequently is a group of guys got together and they filed a class action lawsuit and they uh, they won. But they won on the fact that uh, life didn't mean life. They didn't win on the fact that the parole board arbitrarily determined uh, what meant life. And some of those men were uh, inevitably given the opportunity at, at, at freedom, but some are still sitting here. So it's one of those situations where, you know, when someone gets life with or without parole, because of the stigma of the sentence and what comes along with it, the uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, reputation that perhaps, you know, you deserve the sentence because someone ultimately uh, uh, perished uh, in, a, in an unlawful way, that you were just automatically thrown away. And I, and I think that that, you know, facts have shown, uh, those who have been given the, the blessing of a second chance at life have shown that we, we rarely recidivate. Uh, to give you an example, in my situation, I was convicted of aiding the bedding uh, of felony murder. I literally did not uh, physically kill anyone, but because of the mandatory aspect of NCL 17-16, I was subsequently given life without the possibility of parole, and I'm 20 years into my prison sentence now. Yeah, it's it's so crazy to me that, you know, we there's such a discrepancy in the attitudes toward the death penalty and something like life without the possibility of parole, because in the end result, it seems to me is, is, um, you know, you'll never, never again be free. Right. And it's just about the speed with which it uh, occurs. You know, it's, it it just seems, seems like they're essentially equivalent but yeah. one is seen as a lesser punishment than the other. It's, it's, it's a virtual deficit. See, the irony is, the one I'm, I've read some stats the other day, and I don't want to get the numbers, but uh, out of the states that have the death penalty, many of them have not used them in 10 years or more. Um, in fact, the federal death penalty was only um, uh, executed, if you for the right of a better phrase, uh, the last 100 days of uh, the mass administration's presidency. Uh, where they began to, you know, ramp up these executions, and they hadn't used the death penalty in 16, 20 years in, in, in many instances. So I think the conscience of the will of the people, they're able to uh, swallow, if you will, a sentence of you never getting out versus them putting a needle in your arm because they think it's more humane. And I, and I, and I get it principally uh, on the surface, but if you really understood what goes on in prison and the transformation, and if we begin to now redefine what prison is for. Now, many, I understand that some people are like, hey, man, you killed my loved one, and I don't give a damn on how much you've changed. My, my family member can never come back. And I understand that at first. But I think if we have the opportunity to have some form of restorative justice, 
wherein even if we don't talk to our direct victims, but if we can help someone get through and get over being victimized and that we, in fact, prisoners, lifers specifically, can show, have an opportunity where we can show that we have not only changed, but we have affected and infected change in others' uh, lives. But I think that perhaps, you know, in certain instances on an individual basis, that we would begin to uh, relook at these virtual death sentences like without the possibility of parole because in many instances, man, it is really torture. It is mental and physical torture in, in some jurisdictions uh, throughout America's prison system. Now, that's not to say that, you know, some people probably shouldn't be away for a protected period of time. I mean, Lord knows. But at the same time, you have third world countries that don't have as harsh as uh, prison sentences as uh, the land of free. Uh, Brazil, for example, you know, uh, uh, in, in other places I can name. But my point being is that uh, I think at the root of it, and I'm not trying to play the race card at the same time. If you do the numbers and you look at the facts, the numbers don't lie. Now, you can lie about numbers, but the numbers don't lie. We are disproportionately, African Americans and people of color, quote unquote, are disproportionately given these high sentences over our other ethnic groups. And we are a, a smaller, significant portion of the prison population, not only the, the, uh, the general population, and even in the prison population. We don't make up the majority, but it's a significant portion of us in here proportionate to our population in uh, in society as a large. So it's, 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 it, it tends to be uh, a racial and very, very institutional. Um, you know, so so I think the – yeah, yeah. No, I, I was just going to say that I, I was just going to quote the you know, Bureau of Prisons um, mission statement. And it says, it's the mission of the Federal Bureau of Prisons to protect society by confining offenders in the controlled environments of prisons and community-based facilities that are safe, humane, cost-efficient, right. right. and appropriately secure, right. and that provide work and other self-improvement opportunities to assist offenders in becoming law-abiding citizens. And it right. seems to me that both the death penalty and this virtual death penalty that you're referring to in life without the possibility of parole, you know, don't allow that kind of rehabilitation into becoming no. abiding citizens. It's just, no. yeah, they're kind of mutually exclusive to, to, uh, to say you're hoping for rehabilitation is kind of incongruous with, 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 it without, with it, it. It is, and, and uh, once again, I, I think it is because in certain areas of the country, anywhere, you know, because we know that the laws are, quote, unquote, the will of the people. Um, it, it, those sentences that are given, uh, you know, those versions of death sentences, it, it's not, you know, rehabilitation and the fostering of, you know, good work assignments and whatnot is it, not even in play. It, it is directly aimed at retribution and punishment. So then there should be a separate mission statement for those who have those kind of sentences because then now you won't have, uh, you know, contradictory language or, or hypocrisy in, in, in the mission statement of those, those bureau of prisons. But conversely, there was a case in uh, Michigan, People versus Carp, where in, uh, the party had tried to uh, argue that the Miller effect should extend to those past the age of 18 because in Miller one of the problems was, you know, the uh, notion of being irredeemable. And the Michigan Supreme Court opined in the People v. Carp that uh, certain, certain cases, uh, the will of the people have set uh, aside uh, situations where uh, there is no rehabilitation. Um, and they basically said because of the life without the possibility of parole, that aspect of the, uh, the party's argument uh, failed because 
that was not the reason why this person should be considered uh, because, you know, they were automatically given like the possibility of parole. And I mean, and, and, and that is a nutshell, I oversimplified it, but that's basically what it boils down to. So the Michigan Supreme Court uh, just recently has uh, uh, decided uh, very overtly and, and, and very uh, bluntly that certain sentences, rehabilitation doesn't even come into account. I mean, that just seems, like, I don't know what their goal is in that point, but uh, just to take a step back, I want to elaborate on Miller versus Alabama because I think it does a great job at illustrating how arbitrary some of these sentences are. So, I mean, feel free to elaborate after uh, my brief explanation, but in Miller v. Alabama, my understanding is that there was an individual who was convicted of a crime and sentenced to life without parole at the age of 18, and the the, uh, the court ruled that it was cruel and unusual punishment because it was essentially a life sentence in jail. And uh, right. so I think then from now on, anyone under 18 can't be tried for life without parole. Okay, okay. Now, here, now here's a common misconception. I've seen this on, 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 on uh, court TV, uh, everywhere, even in pop culture, with certain uh, uh, sitcoms and shows and drama shows. The common misconception is that juveniles can't get life without the property in court. This is not true. There's a caveat in there, and there's a quote unquote, I'm not saying call it a loophole, but the, the court reasoned that it's the mandatoriness of life without the possibility of parole. It's the giving uh, them life without the possibility of parole without taking into account certain mitigating and aggravating uh, 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 circumstances, just like you would have in a death penalty case. Imagine now that you have anywhere in the continental U.S., and anywhere for that matter in the U.S., where you talking about uh, when I'm convicted, I'm automatically given the death penalty without having a sentencing phase. As it stands right now, this would be unconscionable. Um, I, uh, the first case that comes to my mind is, uh, I don't know why, but it comes to my mind, Jody Aries. You have one minute remaining. Uh, when it hangs up, I'm, I'm going to call right back if I can. But uh, Jody Aries' situation, wherein when she was found guilty, uh, shortly thereafter in some interviews, she said, okay, give me the death penalty, I don't care, I don't, you know, I don't want to have another sentence hearing. And then uh, next week she changed her mind and then, you know, pleaded for her life and they ended up giving her life without the possibility of parole. But imagine if anywhere in, in the U.S. you automatically got the death penalty. And that's what the court opined in Miller v. Alabama, that it, you can't give a juvenile automatic life without the possibility of parole without taking into the account how they grew up, what was going on with them, abuse, uh, mental state, do they have the ability to be rehabilitated. And I think that that should extend to all virtual death penalty cases. And that's the problem with mandatory life without the possibility of parole, and that's what made it cruel and unusual violated of the Eighth Amendment. Interesting. I wonder what the argument was to stop that at 18. I mean, it seems, it seems obvious to make it that everyone should have well, Thank you for using GTL. This call is now being recorded. Uh, in reference to the 18 cutoff, there was a there was a case, uh, People v. Roper, and in the Roper case, the United States Supreme Court was tasked with dealing with should juveniles be sentenced to death. And in that death penalty case, amongst other things, the court decided that no, uh, it is cruel and unusual. It was not in the best interest of the public, and it was basically barbaric practices for America to, you know, be executing um, uh, 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 persons under the age of 18. But they needed a cutoff date. They needed a cutoff age, if you will, numerically. 
And I think because of the general consensus of the people, 18 was the first, you know, cut-off age that the lawyers uh, argued for and that the court stipulated to. So what ended up happening is that the court adopted that. This became the standard, as, you know, most United States Supreme Court cases do. Uh, and moving forward from that, uh, what happened for many a year is that 18 seemed to be the age by which you became an adult. However, there's this gray area or this other adult age in this country, 21. So there was a lot of uh, extensive research dealing with how did 18 become uh, an age, how did 21 become an age. And ironically enough, that age 21 had absolutely nothing to do with the age of maturity numerically inside of the uh, the young person. It had anything, everything to do with drunk driving, according to some research that I've read from uh, law journal reports and whatnot, uh, where uh, the historians have documented that around, I think it was the 1950s or 60s, don't get me wrong, but somewhere uh, some years ago, many, many years ago, where they saw the Highway Commission and the state police begin to see that persons that were uh, 20 or under the age of 21 would drink and drive, and that's how they got caught in uh, those car accidents. So conversely, at the age of 18, this was the cutoff date or the age in which you could vote. So now what you have is these two different um, ages of maturity, but the brain science denotes that uh, the density of the portion of the brain that gives with risk-reward that becomes more mature without acting in impulse and understands uh, consequences, if you will, doesn't become more dense until 24, 25 years old. So when we're talking about maturity for juveniles or young adolescents, it's, it, there's not a numerical cutoff age. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, that sounds, it just seems ridiculous that I think biologically your frontal lobe is not developed until 24, 25, but we're making 18 the age where we're punishing people for decision-making. It just seems it doesn't add up. That's right. That's right. So do you want to elaborate on your case in particular? I know that you were early 20s at the uh, the time of your crime, and then you were saying that the, the legal system gives you no leeway in being close to 18, like it's a sharp cutoff for 18. That's right. I was uh, 22. I had just turned 22 years old. According to a doctor named Steinberg, uh, in several cases uh, throughout the United States, uh, he has testified in front of, I think, certain congresspersons and, and in certain uh, cases, uh, you know, the legal uh, uh, trials and whatnot and appeals and, and what have you. And basically the brain science, the neuroscience, shows that, uh, you know, just because a person's in their early 20s, uh, in many instances, especially when you talk about a group dynamic, sometimes the person that is in their early 20s may have the same impulsivity as those that may be 15, 16, or something like that. So what they go in there by a range. Now, in California, they, uh, to remedy this, what they've done in California, they've allowed now for the parole board to take into consideration at what age you caught your, uh, you, you know, you caught your crime. So if you were between the ages of 16 to 18, you should be considered when you go for parole, uh, with special considerations for that uh, bracket. If you were between the ages of 18 and 23, you should be considered in that bracket, and then 23, I think, all the way up to 26. Now, ironically, in Michigan, they have what you call a sentencing grid sheet. And a sentencing grid sheet or a, um, where, where, you know, you, uh, for disciplinary purposes where you can be housed in certain security levels. If you go so many months ticket free, you know, you get points off and then it obviously gives you more privileges and whatnot. Well, in Michigan, they recognize that if you turn the age of 26, then they take so many points off. And like I was, uh, I think I talked about this before, they tell us, this lets us know that the Michigan 
Michigan Department of Corrections even recognizes certain ages of maturity or certain eras in which you grow into uh, a responsibility. But the, the courts and the laws doesn't depict that as of right now. So just just say one thing to uh, so we can understand a little better. So the parole board, when you when you I don't know if you apply for parole, but do they do they have any like judgment in uh, changing sentencing, or once you're sentenced with uh, this blanket sentence, it's it's written in stone? Okay, now because of my sentence, it is literally against the law for the parole board to consider or to give me a parole. I have to go through a special process by which the governor has to sign off. Now, if they, uh, I think the statute is MCL 731.234, somewhere it's like that. And in that, it says that all persons in the MDOC are subject to the parole except those sentenced under MCL 7316, which is the murder statute or the sentence enhancement statute for first-degree murder, murder. So the parole board literally, hands are tied legally. And one of the easy remedies would be to amend the statute and say, well, if a person has been charged and sentenced under MCL 753.16 after they've served a protracted period of time, say 20 to 25 years, and if they caught their cases between the ages of such and such and such and so and so, what this would allow the parole board to do is to assess the case. But what's happening because of the mandatoriness of MCL 753.16 and because of the culture of the jurisprudence in Michigan, what happens is the Michigan Parole Board, which is basically um, uh, – give you a lifer hearing after your first 10 calendar years in here, and then every five-year file review subsequently, but they hardly ever give it to you unless you file for a commutation. And we know that the governor doesn't necessarily get directly involved in lifer's cases unless you know someone or, you know what I mean, unless uh, there's a special uh, circumstance by which, you know, your commutation is heard. But as it stands right now, the, uh, the parole board is legally uh, uh, obligated to not consider you for, you're not eligible for parole. I'm going to say consider you're not eligible for a parole. Now, I recall in our, I think, early conversations, you were describing, um, you know, the, the certain circumstances of your sentencing, how the mm -hmm. the gentleman holding the weapon that ultimately led to the loss of life right. um, has had a reduced sentence. Right. Um, whereas because you were older, you did not receive the same, even though you were the person holding the gun. That's um, right. Is there any recourse, possibility of appealing, you know, based on that specific circumstance? Okay, now based on those circumstances, you know, law, uh, especially appellate law, the simple answer is maybe. Is there any concrete? Yes, absolutely not. Uh, in England, the aid and the bedding theory would uh, follow all the way through from principal to uh, co-defendants even if the principal was given some action on the appeal, then it would automatically transfer over to the accomplice or the aider and the better. Well, in America, not so. Uh, you would think that because the principal or the quote-unquote shooter, the person who held the gun and pulled the trigger, you would think that because they were resentenced uh, and found to be, uh, you know, a juvenile, that this would automatically uh, transfer over to me, but that's not the case. It, it, it just doesn't work like that. Now, the reason why I say maybe is because this could be new scientific evidence. We know that it's scientific evidence because the, Michigan, the United States Supreme Court in Miller recognized the brain science of immaturity of young adolescents or juveniles. This falls squarely under the uh, auspices of uh, newly discovered evidence. Well, there's no way that my jury could have heard that 
uh, simply because Miller had not yet been decided. So that's why I said maybe, and it's one of those tricky things. I, I, to, to be honest with you, it's so novel of an issue. I don't know if I will be successful alone in it, and I don't know if it will be taken up by a, uh, a, a group of lawyers or whatnot. I, I simply do not know. But I will say this. I understand that the general consensus of the people now uh, are, are kind of against that, and I don't know if there's going to be laws that will change that will, you know, uh, remedy such assistance. But as it stands right now, um, there's literally no smoking gun, if you will, that would actually, you know, uh, allow for me to have a second chance at uh, uh, freedom. Interesting. Now, I, I have something tangentially related to uh, something you just brought up. You know, you said okay. uh, you don't know whether it would be possible to get a team of lawyers behind, um, right. you know, your case to try right. and have your sentencing reduced. Um, what, you know, what is the kind of access that um, incarcerated people have to attorneys, whether it's to, you know, appeal a case or have okay. a sentencing amended, you know, I'm okay. very curious about that. Well, what you have is what they call FATO. FATO is an acronym for State Appointment Defender's Office. And oftentimes when you are indigent and don't have, can't afford it, uh, on your first round of appeals, the state will pay for your first round of appeals. And I have seen where some are federal attorneys because, you know, of their level of involvement and commitment, that they will actually, you know, for years on end continue to help people. But for the most part, if you don't have money, man, you don't have anything in the way of representation. But I have seen men grow into law and grow into their specific um, issues and become very, very brilliant litigators, uh, researchers and whatnot. Um, but the thing of it is, when you're a pro se litigant and you're a pauper, um, the mere fact that you would raise certain issues, I think sometimes, and I have no empirical evidence of this, but there's facts that show that pro se litigants get denied overwhelmingly, not necessarily because they uh, fail in their arguments, but you have pitfalls of procedural bars or uh, uh, things of that nature. I think it is just like, yo, who are you to tell me what the law is? You know, yeah, you're right, but it's harmless error. You're right, but, you know, so... Uh, if, if you don't have money, man, and if you don't have uh, a first line of appeal that's airlocked tight, you will spend uh, 20, 30 years in here trying to get uh, some relief. I think I think that sounds like another unfortunate example of uh, underserved people being even farther marginalized, mar- marginalized, and uh, suffering from revolving door. Once you get in, you can't get out. The same. Absolutely. Now, I'm a, re- I'm a reasonable person, so I, and I understand that some people are like, hey, man, we're not going to fund our tax dollars for this person who's done this particular act to give them lawyers that would subsequently uh, gain them victims. And I understand it. At the same time, if we're talking about equity in law, then let's have representation that would represent uh, our, our peoples. You know, but we know that there's two Americas. We know that there's two justices. If you're rich, you get one representation. If you're not rich, you don't get that. But does that mean being that you are less culpable? So I think that if we go at the law and make the law fair, that's what I love, I love about this country's mantra of it's a land of law. But the laws can be manipulated, and they can be heavy-handed, and they can, you know, marginalize people intentionally or unintentionally. But the fact remains that you have people in here that have been in prison 20, 30, 40 years that are no way, uh, shape, or form. Uh, reminiscent of the person that they were when they first came to prison. It just it didn't work like that, not even in life. Uh, from 10, the age of 10, literally, to the age of 20, which is 10-year difference, you're a totally different person. From 20 to 30, you're a totally different person. From 30 to 40, you're a totally different person. I know some guys that have been in prison since they were 17, they're now 50. There's no way you can tell me that they're the same people. 
I mean, yeah, I, I feel like I'm a totally different person from when I was 20, and I'm 22 <laughs> now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love, I'd love to. I don't have statistics on hand right now, but I'd love to look deeper into the uh, statistics of recidivism rate versus time in jail. Um, okay. for certain, time served. Yeah, time served. So if someone serves a 10-year sentence, what's the chance they're, they'll uh, reoffend versus yeah. one that spent 20 well, years I, or two years? Well, I, I can say this. To help in your research, when you do find it, all you have to do is look at the uh, aging out of crime. And I would, I would imagine that that would take you into a whole host of, of, of information and stats and studies that show after a particular age, you literally age out of crime, and primarily after maybe 10, 15 years. Now, I can tell you from personal experience, I've been in prison 20 calendar years. Every year after my 10th year in here, to me, has been torture. You have one minute remaining. And what I mean is that I no longer subscribe to the value system that I have. And it sounds so institutional and perhaps some of the preachy from the self-help classes, but I can really articulate it in that manner and say that there's nothing that I would want to do in the way of breaking the law when I'm free. So I know happen to know for a fact that after 10 years, man, in prison, it just changes you. It really does. And what do you think that would attribute what would you attribute that? Like, what would you attribute that, that change to? Uh, number one, self-reflection and study. Uh, the loss of family members and maturity of my children growing up, and just being in prison all that time, and, and understanding that you know you have to grow up. From so from 22 to 32, I did a, a drastic change, and from 22 to 40 or 32 to 42, I'm no longer that person. But I, I, I want to I want to sign off now and tell you guys I'm gonna call back tomorrow around this time because I don't want to just hang up abruptly. But I, I appreciate you guys, man. Hopefully we can pick this conversation up tomorrow. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so much for your candor. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's always great. Okay, we'll, we'll get deeper tomorrow. Thank you for using GTL.